And one of the most fascinating studies in the Word of God is the study of what transpired on each day of our Lord's Passion Week. On Sunday, he rode into Jerusalem on a lowly donkey to exuberant praise. Hosanna, Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna to the Son of David as he rode in to Jerusalem, making his triumphant entry. The timing of his entry into Jerusalem was very important because his entry occurred on the 10th day of the month of Nisan in the spring. The entry was important because the Passover lamb was taken up and set apart on that day. The lamb had to be set apart for four days to make sure there would be no blemishes in the lamb that would be slain. The Bible tells us that Jesus is our Passover lamb. He was our substitute and sacrifice for sin on the cross at Calvary. The law of Moses commanded that the Passover lamb be set apart and inspected by the priest on the 10th day of the month before Passover in Exodus 12.3. When he made his public entry into Jerusalem, he was presenting himself to the world as our Passover lamb. 32 times in the word of God, the lamb is used as a symbol of the Lord Jesus Christ. John the Baptist identified him as the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In Revelation 22.3, the Apostle John gives the last recorded reference to the Lamb of God in the Word of God. Let's read it together. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. The Lamb shall be in it. Talking about heaven. Talking about the new heavens and the new earth. On Monday of his Passion Week, Jesus entered into the temple at Jerusalem. The Jewish temple was very important in the life of the Jewish believer because it was the center of their worship. The Jewish male was required to come to the temple at least three times a year to worship, to offer sacrifices, and to celebrate the different feasts that God had given to them in the law of Moses. This event is recorded in three of the four Gospels. We learn that he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. As a matter of fact, when Beth and I were in Jerusalem several years ago, all around Jerusalem, they have money changers, even to this day. And you would go and you would change out your dollars for shekels with the money changers. So even today, the money changers are still there in Jerusalem. But there he went into the, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. The outer court of the temple had become a place of merchandising. The merchants were profiting from God's people at the expense of their worship. Notice Jesus' words in Matthew 21, 13. It is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. You're robbing and stealing from the very people that are supposed to come here to pray. You've made it. You've turned it into something other than what it was supposed to be. The reference there to den of thieves has to do with those who would hide themselves in the caves and steal from innocent people as they pass through the mountainous areas around Jerusalem. What happens when Jesus enters the temple? He restores prayer to its rightful place. And in this week that remembers the sacrificial death and his burial and his victorious resurrection, why not ask God to restore your personal temple? Because the Apostle Paul writes and teaches that our bodies are now the temple of God in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. What happened when Jesus cleansed the temple? Prayer was restored to its rightful place and became a priority in God's house. The blind and the lame were healed and the children began to cry out in praise to God. The same will happen in our lives when we get our temple in order. 
when Christ visits us individually and corporately, prayer will become a priority. We will experience his healing power in our life, and our children and those around us will cry out in exuberant praise to God. I believe that the mandate, my house shall be called a house of prayer, has never changed. I believe that's what the house here should be, is be a house of prayer. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. God hears and answers the prayers of his people. That was on Monday. On Tuesday, the next day, he's again in the temple. In Mark's gospel, we learn that Jesus sat near the offering box. Where does Jesus sit in church? He sits near the offering box. He observed how the crowd tossed money in for the collection. And we learned that those who were rich gave large gifts. And in Mark 12, 42, from the Message Bible, we learned that one poor widow came up and put in two small coins. Says a measly two cents. Most folks would have scoffed at that. But in Mark 12, 43, this became a teachable moment. And Jesus called his disciples over and said, The truth is that this poor widow gave much more to the collection than all the others put together. See, most today would scoff at such an insignificant gift. We would celebrate the large contributions and honor the generous donors and, and we would cater to them as that's what we do in many ministries today. But God's ways are different than ours. Listen to how Jesus describes her gift in verse 44 from the Message Bible. All the others gave what they'll never miss. She gave extravagantly what she couldn't afford. She gave her all. One translation said she gave out of her poverty. I thought, man, that will preach. How do we get out of poverty? We give out of our poverty. We give our way out of our poverty. Poverty is of the enemy. Poverty is a curse from the enemy. It's a curse from sin. Jesus never meant for us to live in poverty. Now, poverty is not a lack of money always. It's a mindset. It's a stronghold the enemy gets a hold of us. When we think about poverty, we think about not having any shoes on our feet. Or we think about not being able to feed our families. But poverty is a mindset that gets a hold of us. And people can be filthy rich and still live in poverty. You can have all you need and still live in poverty. A fear that you'll not have enough, that's a manifestation that you're dealing with a poverty mentality. But this dear lady came with her two measly little coins. She said, it's all I have. I heard the story of a, of a mission service. And they said they were asking people to give to missions and asking people to sow into missions. And as they passed the plate, they came to a little girl. And the little girl took and stepped out and stepped into the plate. She said, I don't have anything to give, so I'll just give myself. You think that got God's attention? I'll say that it did. It got God's attention. She gave herself. She gave her all. There was one little girl that had a beautiful diamond ring, and she decided to give it into the offering, and the pastor found out about it. And he took and got it out of the offering and took it and said, we're going to give it back to you because you shouldn't be, be, be giving that such an extravagant gift. She said, I didn't give it to you. I gave it to the Lord. She gave her all. Jesus gave his all. He went to the cross. He gave his all for you and I. How much more do we need to do that? See, God don't need your money. He's really not after your money. He's after your heart. And the Bible said where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And that's what he's after. I've preached and taught about stewardship, come under a lot of criticism. I'm just trying to get the, the curse off of your life. I'm just trying to get you into alignment and in obedience with the Lord. Because one day I'm going to stand before God for what I preach. And I want him to say, well done. I don't want him to say, well, you, you were more afraid of man than you were of me. I want him to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Amen. He gave his best at the cross. 
How can you be extravagant in what you give to God today? We can be extravagant in our praise. And we have to make Jesus Christ Lord of everything in our lives. And my question is, have you given your best to him? That's on Tuesday. On Wednesday, Wednesday is also known as Silent Wednesday. One source said that there's little recorded in the Gospels, but much activity as Jesus prepares for the Passover Seder, the Last Supper. In Luke 22, 1 through 6, now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. In these verses, we learn that Judas conferred with the high priests and officials to betray the Lord for money. Verse 6 reveals that Judas sought opportunity to betray him. He sought opportunity to betray him. Judas looked for an opportunity to betray him. He was one of the twelve. He had traveled with our Lord. He knew Jesus. He knew who he was. He'd seen him in all kinds of situations. He had witnessed the healing of blind Bartimaeus on the roadside. He had been with Jesus when the lame walked, when the deaf ears were opened and the dead were raised to life again. Yet he sought for an opportunity to betray him. I wonder how many times we seek an opportunity to betray him. How do we betray him? We betray him when we succumb to temptation. We betray him with our eyes and with our speech. We can betray him with what we touch in the places we go. When I was a young person growing up in children's church, we used to sing a little song, Oh, be careful little eyes what you see. Oh, be careful little ears what you hear. Have you betrayed him by what you've heard, by what you've heard, by what you've seen, or what you've touched? Romans 6.13, Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Do not present your members. Be careful what you listen to. We like those choice morsels, the Bible says, that juicy gossip. If I'm listening to it, I'm as guilty as participating in it. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness. What I look at, what I allow into my home, what I allow on my screen, What am I looking at? What am I opening my eye gates to? What am I touching? Your members as instruments of unrighteousness. But he says, you present your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Change what you're touching. Instead of touching that which is wicked and sinful, start touching that which is righteous and holy. How do I do that? I lift my hands and worship to God. It's an act of surrender. See, that's why he says, lift up your hands. A great study is the body parts. Studying the feet, the eyes, the ears, studying the five senses, studying those things in the scriptures and what it says to us about those things and how we can defile our temples and defile ourselves with those instruments. But he says, yield your members as instruments of righteousness to God. How do I do that? I do that by touching people with the gospel, touching people with healing, touching people by leading them to Christ, touching people by witnessing to them. I can touch others for the Lord instead of touching that which is wicked, that which is sinful, and yielding my members as instruments of righteousness to God. God is saying let's yield those members not to unrighteousness, but to righteousness to God. On Thursday, we come to Thursday. Thursday night of the Passion Week is filled with different events. 
Jesus shares the Passover Seder meal with his 12 disciples in an upper room in Jerusalem. The Christian world refers to this day as Maundy or Holy Thursday. It's a time set aside on the Christian calendar to commemorate the Lord's Last Supper. It was during this supper that he instituted Holy Communion, or as it is called in some churches, the Lord's Supper. At the Passover meal, we learned that he broke the bread, distributed it to his disciples and said, this represents my body which will be broken for you. He then took up the cup and told them, this cup represents my blood that will be shed so that a new covenant will be instituted. Christians today observe Holy Communion to commemorate the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. But it's more than a memorial. It's more than just a supper that remembers. It's more than just an object lesson that preaches a message. There's life and power released in that communion. There can be healing that takes place in that communion. That's why the Lord said some are sleeping. In other words, they're prematurely dying. And some are, are walking through difficulty. And they're sick because they're not rightly discerning the Lord's body. We've always said, well, that's just unconfessed sin in our life. But many times that means that we've done things not to discern the Lord's body. We've brought division or we've done something in the Lord's body. And we have to come clean and repent of that. He said this cup is a new covenant. We observe that today. And we commemorate his death, burial, and his resurrection. But there's life released in that. That's why there's an opportunity when we come to the table of the Lord to confess our sins, to come clean, to ask the Lord to cleanse us, to ask the Lord to touch us and minister to us. We take communion. Perry Stone wrote a book called The Meal That Heals. And he collaborates with a medical doctor, I believe, in that book. And he talks about the healing power that can be released in the communion. I'd encourage you to take communion at home. On this busy night, we learned that before they sat down to share in the Passover meal, that Jesus took off his outer garment wrapped up in a towel. He took a basin of water and washed the feet of his disciples. Listen to the conversation between the Lord and Simon Peter in John 13, 6-8. Then he came to Simon Peter and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, if I do not wash you, you have no part of me. Then Simon Peter said, Lord, not my feet also, but also my hands and my head. Why did Jesus wash the feet of his disciples? John 13, 14, if I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. He was demonstrating the role of a servant. A servant, we've lost sight of that. I'm telling you, in the body of Christ today, we're enamored with titles. We've made it about prestige, pride, position. We've got to get away from that and back to the idea that God didn't call us to have a title. He called us to be a servant. The term ministry in its, in its purest form means servant. We're not called to, to rule over God's people like dictators, but we're called to serve God's people in a spirit of being a servant. The Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who would be our Passover lamb, took off his outer garment, robed himself in a towel, and washed the feet of those disciples. Now you think about it. They were in a dusty, deserted land. They wore sandals. Their feet were dirty. He washed their feet. That wasn't just a token thing, but he washed their feet. And Peter said, Lord, you can't wash my feet. No, you can't do that. Peter was trying to be humble. But the Lord said, if I don't wash you, you have no part of me. Wash my feet, my hands, and my head also, Lord. That's what God's called us to do, is to wash one another's feet. There's something powerful about washing feet. 
because it is a demonstration of service. It is an act of humility, but it's also an act of of serving. And the person that their feet gets washed, there's a liberation and a freedom that comes to them in the midst of that. He said, you have no part of me if you don't let me wash your feet. This was before the Passover Seder. This is before he went to the cross. He's showing his love for his disciples. And it's one of the many ways that he demonstrated his love by serving others. And it was after supper that that he then went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. One of my favorite places in Israel was the Garden of Gethsemane. And my, actually, my screensaver on my iPad is one of the trees that are there that's from one of the roots that was in that garden when Jesus prayed. It's a big tree. It's hundreds and hundreds, maybe uh, a thousand years old. And they've tended that garden and worked on that garden. It's right there in that beautiful place where Jesus prayed and cried out to God in the garden. In Luke chapter 22, verse 39 through 46, coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And he rose up from prayer. And he came to his disciples. He found them sleeping from sorrow. Sleeping from sorrow, grief. Then he said to them, why do you sleep? Rise and pray lest you enter into temptation. Why were they sleeping? Because many times we, our human body is affected by those spiritual experiences. You ever been to church and been in a tremendous service where there's an outpouring of the spirit? God is moving powerfully and you feel energized. But when you leave, man, you, you just, you're drained. You're, you're drained. It's emotional and you've been in the presence of God. And see, natural and supernatural, when they meet, something gives. Something has to give. When Beth and I, when I go and preach and minister somewhere, I, I carry a, there's a, a pressure, not a, not a stress, but a pressure that you've got to, Give your attention to these meetings. You're, you're not here to play and have a good time and to play golf and vacate. But you, you feel the, the tug of that in you. And, but it's afterwards you say, now I feel released. I'm good. I'm good. I know we got it done. It's finished. And you feel that release. You feel that lift off of you. And then you're tired. You're like, Ooh, what was that? It was in his presence. In his presence. So they're asleep. And we, we tend to say, well, why were they sleeping? They should have been watching and praying. Because we'd have been sleeping too. He said, rise and pray lest you enter into temptation. There's a good lesson for us. If we don't pray, we'll enter into temptation. Could you not watch with me? He see the seriousness of that moment. In Luke chapter 22, verse 47 through 52, he's betrayed by Judas and arrested. Verse 54, having arrested him, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house. But Peter followed at a distance. That'll preach right there. Peter followed at a distance. You can't follow God at a distance. It's all or nothing. I'm telling you, I've felt in my spirit for the last few weeks that it's time to make a new commitment. It's time to, to come back to God and say, God, here I am. I lay it all on the altar. I'm willing to give up whatever you tell me to give up. I'm ready to walk away from what you tell me to walk away from. You've you got to come to those moments in your Christian life, and you will have them at epic moments in your life where you've got to say, I've got to press into God and have all he, can, he has. I've got to move into what God has for me. And it may cost you, and it may cost you everything to do it. And I sense that we're in that moment here in this Passover season. 
as we start this Passover season and end this Passover season to the next 50 days to Pentecost, it's a very significant time because it's a time when movement begins to take place. And this is a season of realignments and reassignments. This is a season of movement in this year. But here's the key. You don't have to fight this battle by yourself or the Lord will fight this battle. It's his battle. Are you tired of where you are? Are you tired of what you're experiencing? Are you ready to break out and break through? But you've got to press in. You can't do it by being lethargic. We can't do it by just, you know, a little prayer here and a little uh, religious thing there. We got, to, we got to press into God. And as I press into him, I may have to press against the resistance of the enemy, but just press till you get through. Press till you get through. Press till the breaker comes. Because he's the God of the breakthrough. Amen? He was betrayed. In Luke 22, verse 54, it says, Having arrested him, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house, but Peter followed at a distance. He was first taken to the house of the high priest, according to John 18, 13, and he was brought before Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. And then we come to Friday. Think about Jesus. He's had no sleep. This is in the wee hours of the morning. He's had a meal with his disciples. He's shared with them. If you read... Those chapters in John that leads up to this, you'll see that he had really shared, he'd really poured into them. It's expedient that I go away, for if I go not away, the helper, the comforter will not come. But when he comes, he'll lead you and guide you into all truth. He'll not speak of himself, but those things that he's heard me, he will bring to your remembrance. John 17, the high priestly prayer, Lord, I pray that they may be one, that they may be one, that the world may know that I've sent them. When will the world know that we're serious when we become one? The world will see that we're serious. And the world will know that he sent us. And they led him away. They took him to Annas first, who was not even the high priest. And then to Caiaphas, who was the high priest. He's had no sleep. He's weary. By this time, he had been abused, treated as a criminal. And remember that the Jewish day begins at sundown. And in the early nighttime hours, he has his first trial before Annas. And Annas is looking for an accusation, biding time Till the Sanhedrin can be gathered. See there are two legal systems that condemn Christ. There's the Jewish and then there's the Roman. Both systems underlie modern jurisprudence. The arrest and the proceedings under Annas, Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin were under Jewish law. But those under Pilate and Herod were under Roman law. Some teach that Jesus endured six different trials. There were three Jewish religious trials. And three civil Roman trials. Why six trials? Because he was tried in the courts of man. Six is the number of man. Not seven. Because that's the number of completion and perfection. Not five. Because that's the number of grace. Not eight. Because that's the number of resurrection and new beginnings. But six. The number of man. He hang on the cross. Six hours. The number of man. But I'm going to tell you something. Where the first Adam man failed. The last Adam. The son of man triumphed. Hallelujah. Six trials. Dr. Schofield writes, he said, the Jewish trials of Jesus composed three stages. He appeared before Annas, an informal trial before Caiaphas, the high priest, and the formal trial by the Sanhedrin. The Roman trial consisted of three stages. Jesus was questioned by Pilate the first time. He was sent to Herod in Luke chapter 23, 6 through 12. And then Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate, who releases Barabbas. The Jewish trial of Jesus was illegal in the following ways. Number one, the judge was not impartial and did not protect the accused. He didn't get justice. He got injustice. 
But he died that you and I can have justice. You may not get justice from man, but if you know God, God will give you justice. The rest was unlawful, secondly, because it was carried out under no formal accusation. Number three, in criminal trials, all sessions had to be started and carried on only during the day. Night sessions were illegal. Number four, a verdict of guilty could not be rendered on the same day as the conclusion of the trial. It had to be given on the next day. Number five, the search for hostile testimony was illegal. Number six, no accused could be convicted on his own evidence, yet they sought replies and admissions from Christ to condemn him. Number seven, no valid legal evidence was presented against him. And number eight, after Pilate declared Christ innocent in Matthew 27, 24, his actions were contrary to the letter and the spirit of Roman law, according to Dr. C.I. Schofield. On Friday, he was then led to Golgotha. He was crucified. But at three o'clock in the afternoon, he yielded up his spirit and he cried, it is finished. The veil in the temple was torn. The Passover lambs were slain in the temple and Jesus was buried before sundown. We come to Saturday. What's going on in Saturday? Low in the grave he lay. Jesus, our Savior. Pilate grants a guard and places a seal on the tomb of Jesus. On Saturday, all is quiet. I've been in that garden. I've been to that tomb. It's a serene place. It's a beautiful place. It's like an oasis in the midst of a busy city. When you go into that garden, you feel the serene presence of God there. Borrowed tomb on Saturday. There he lays. The one who claimed to be the Messiah. The one they believed would come and throw off the yoke of Roman tyranny and slavery and restore Israel to its proper place that were promised by the prophets. But God had another plan. See what prophets of old saw were the mountain peaks of prophecy. They didn't see the valleys. They didn't know that God was going to give his son a Gentile bride. You remember Joseph sold into slavery? You study the life of Joseph, there's many parallels to Jesus. Many parallels to Jesus. Joseph had a Gentile bride. Pharaoh gave him an Egyptian woman to be his bride. Jesus was going to have a Gentile bride, that's you and I. That will be made up of Jew and Gentile, Greek, bond and free. So the Bible says, and we become what's called the one new man in Christ. They didn't see that, they didn't know that. Even the early church had to have a council to deal with the fact that Gentiles were getting saved. You remember when the Lord spoke to Peter and said, go to the house of Cornelius, an Italian. There's an occupier. And when Peter got there, he said, it's not lawful for me to be here. But yet the Spirit of God came. And Peter later testified there at that council of Jerusalem of what happened at Cornelius' house. Jesus died not just for the sins of a few, but he died for the sins of many, that we could all be saved and all come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. There he is in the tomb Saturday, but Sunday's coming. That brings me to Sunday, what happened on Sunday. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Lo, in the grave he lay, Jesus my Savior. But as the old song says, up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph o'er his foes. He arose victorious. You remember the ladies were coming. See, the women loved Jesus because he liberated them. But yet Jesus came and he liberated them and he elevated them to the place that God intended when he created them. So here comes the women to prepare his body. And let me tell you what they did in that time. His body would have been laid out. They would have taken his prayer shawl, his delete. They would have wrapped it around him. They would have cut off the seat seats, fringe cords. They would have placed it around his temple. For that's where they believed the temple was. And they would lay that body and they would prepare it for the burial. And they would let it decompose. Jewish people don't usually embalm their bodies. 
They believe it should go back to the earth. And they would let that body stay there and eventually they would come to that grave when the, when the body was decomposed, there'd be nothing left but and they would bring a little box called an ossuary. They would take those bones and place them in that box. So they were coming to prepare his body, but when they got there, an angel's there, an angel's there. <laughs> Why seek you the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen as he said. We don't serve a dead savior, but we serve a living savior. We serve a living Savior. Stand with me tonight.